Hello, and thank you for joining me for the third in this new series of podcasts from Faber and Faber. My name is George Miller, and every month I'll be bringing you interviews with writers in which they talk about their latest work. Both the books I'll be discussing today have recovering the past from forgetting or suppression as central themes. Later in this programme, I'll be talking to Stefan Merrill Block about his debut novel, The Story of Forgetting, which tells the story of a family coping with a genetic history of early onset Alzheimer's. I, it's the book I had to write in order to kind of become an adult writer. It's, it's full of all the things that I hoped for and feared as a child. So right, discussing Alzheimer's, because it was such a prevalent thing in my childhood and such a burden of my childhood, was, I mean, essential to the project, I think. My first guest today is Sebastian Barry, whose previous book, A Long, Long Way, was shortlisted for the Booker Prize. In his new book, The Secret Scripture, Rosanne McNulty, who is approaching her 100th birthday in an Irish mental hospital, tries to make sense of her past, and in doing so, illuminates a period of her country's past when people could be incarcerated for not conforming to what society demanded of them. When I met Sebastian, I asked him if it was true that he had based the character of Rosanne on a real woman in his own family's history. Yeah, and I almost hesitate to connect it to her because there's a sort of arrogance in doing so. I mean, I, I invoke her, and she ca- certainly caused, was the cause of the book, the cause celebrity, you might say, that caused the book. But I don't know who she was, I don't know her name. So, in my usual way, I've, I've invented a book for her, but one of my great uncles did marry a woman, and then, for some reason, he was a rising young politician in Sligo, and for some reason, she was considered unsuitable, and she was tucked away into an asylum in Sligo sometime in the 30s and forgotten about. So much so that when my great-uncle married again and in the course of time died himself, his new family, his children, were shocked, astonished and possibly even offended to discover their father had been married before and they had never known anything about it. Because I think he'd had the marriage annulled, which is one of the stories of the book. And An annulment of marriage doesn't mean a divorce, of course. You're told that your marriage never existed. Roseanne holds on to her, her name, McNulty, even though she knows that by law, by Vatican efforts, that's part of her life has been erased. So I saw this in 1989, my mother, I was knocking around Sligo with my mother, who was from Sligo, and who, who would have been a niece of this woman? And she showed me the house, little tin hut in Strand Hill, where they'd put her before they committed her. And she said, that's where that woman lived, and she didn't even have a name for her. And the next time I went down to Sligo, nothing remained of it but the chimney, like in a Wild West story. And then just recently when I went down, nothing remained at all. They had removed the entire place. So as they removed the entire place, I suppose I've been trying to put this in its place as moral to her, but not not as a, you know, to place myself beside her as anything except a member of the family that did this to her. Her story, in many ways, is not atypical. There were many women like her. Her, her psychiatrist said at one point in the book she was put in 
a mental hospital for mm. social rather than medical reasons. Yeah. And in the book, it w- is very striking. There are many institutions. There are mental hospitals. There are convents. There are orphanages. There's a lot of confinement. A lot of people being shut away, mm. and their powers of speech or expressing their own stories taken away from them. Mm. Well, it's, it was a form of inner emigration. We know all about um, the floods of people who had to leave Ireland in all those decades, even after independence, even a greater flood of people, because the place was so economically challenged. And I was talking recently to, uh, happens to be a journalist in in Galway, and his father, he told me, was the superintendent or the chief psychiatrist in one of the asylums in the West. And he said, you know, it's quite true that we, he, this journalist had grown up in one of these institutions as his father's son. He says, you know, it's very true. We knew that, my father knew that maybe even as much as 80% of the people in the asylum were not people with mental illnesses as such, but people who had been extra surplus people on farms and in families. And there was nothing else they could do with them. Otherwise, the farm would have been divided up so severely that no one could work it, and they might have been the sort of people who would want to emigrate. So one way or another, they were shifted sideways. And I suppose the word asylum then takes on a new meaning. It's a place of safety and refuge, but maybe this was the the opposite. And I know from my great friend, Ivor Brown, who was once the chief psychiatrist of Ireland, rather wonderful title when you think about it, um, you know, he has told me a lot about the history of asylums and I, the things that were done to people and the way administrations in asylums would put up with quite a lot before they would dismiss somebody that would be, say, maybe abusive inmates because they were little kingdoms unto themselves and they certainly didn't like outside interference. So that was another thing that would, you put your great right hand away not only into an asylum but in, in your mind. But is she safe in that place? And she's surely long dead. But was she safe? And what happened to her? That's a sort of retrospective concern, and people just didn't know it was what was happening to their relatives. And I think it was a comfortable idea that they were being looked after in some way, even though they hadn't the slightest idea what was happening to them. Of course, the history, the recent history of the Magdalen laundries, has been revealed in Ireland. In a way, the history of the asylums is inaccessible because the records were so poorly kept. Even in the book, Dr. Green has difficulty accessing her records because the mice mice have devoured them and all the rest of it. Uh, A lot of records were destroyed as well. And it images in some curious way what happened during the War of Independence when the forecourts were bombed by the irregular soldiers uh, and all the birth certificates of the nation were destroyed. And that makes you think of, of, was it O'Higgins saying in the Doyle, because of the Civil War, that we have murdered the baby in its cradle, the baby of Ireland. And, uh, you know, and Roseanne has, has a mysterious child, and that's part of the story as well. And I can see, even as I speak to you, that, that these things are bound up one with, one with another, which maybe shows you that somehow in going for lost histories, the lost histories of these people, of these lost people, you may, be, you may then start to be talking more accurately about Irish history, that they embody it in some way, 
and everything else is just the history of the winners, which mm. is always, to me, a poor story. Mm. You could have taken the decision simply to tell Rosanne's story with all its lacunae and, um, and, and gaps and misrememberings, or you could have decided to set her story against the official version but instead you've done something you've done a third thing which i think is is infinitely more interesting because you've got a second narrator mm-hmm. who is himself trying to get the official history and having all sorts of problems doing that mm-hmm. and even when he seems to get it he's having difficulty remember you know remembering mm-hmm. things that he's mm-hmm. read in it so mm-hmm. it seemed to me you wanted to do things about the, the nature of memory and, and and any form of of story or history well when devalira devalira was a very brilliant man he came when when the Irish state was established, he was him and his companions were were imprisoned because of the civil war, because they had tried to disrupt a, the nascent state. But by 1933, he was in power. Uh, that would be the beginnings of the Fianna Fáil party, and he was a very brilliant man. He was a mathematician, but he was also very interested in history, and he knew how history should be written. I mean, strangely enough, I got a a letter recently from from Australia and it was from the brother of the man who had written who was de Valera's historian and he was writing about another book of mine a long long way and uh, how, how, what an interest he'd taken in it and I thought that was curious because in some ways I would have regarded myself as being in the opposite pole of that sort of official de Valera in history but anyway that's a sign of the beautiful reconciliations I think going on not only between Ireland and England, but within Ireland itself. Um, but de Valera had the history written, and he did say that when he died, that probably Michael Collins would become the hero of the story. But while he was alive, he was going to try and <laughs> prevent that. So therefore, you see already in Ireland, we grew up with the official history, with the unofficial history swimming around underneath it, oral history or um, um, memory of older people, memories of the Civil War that were never sp- spoken of publicly because it was too terrible to speak of, often in direct conflict with some of the nobler narratives. You'd get a history of men going up a mountain to engage with another group of men and one or two were killed. But sometimes the truth of these things were really very terrifying indeed. And, and that's what I was trying to just use that in the book in the sense that sometimes those false histories were written truthfully, if you know what I mean. The people writing them believed in them because they were infused with a heroic ideal and they made these histories. So they had a truth for themselves, but they were opposed to other truths. And I think that's, it is probably true in the book that a lot of Roseanne's account can't be factually true but she has created a narrative which essentially is what any history does. And he has found a more, Dr. Green has found a crueler narrative of the same events, some of the same events, with a narrative written with the point of view of having her committed by a priest, Father Gaunt, many years before. And he's found that, and when he's reading that for the first time, he has no idea of her testimony because he hasn't found it yet, he hasn't been given it yet. She's writing that secretly, hence the title. And, uh, but he, towards the end of the book he's able to put the two together and they, they don't match and he's puzzling over that at the, at the end of the day he decides he prefers her untruth because it radiates health to him 
as a doctor. The other account radiates power misapplied, given wrongly and used wrongly. I'm sure that the that revisionist history in Ireland that we tend to favour also is imbued with its own ideals. There's no other way of being a human being and writing. So I'm not prioritising one thing over another thing, but I'm interested in the fact that two or three things may coexist. And we, may fi we find that in our own lives. Your partner may say, but look, this, this and this happened on Saturday morning, and you're absolutely certain the three other things happened. And, and a war is going to ensue from that. But that, you know, it's the nature of human memory. And the certainty of memory is what creates both the trouble and the poetry of memory. Mm. Yeah. You mentioned Father Gaunt, who in many ways is the architect of Rosanne's misfortune because it's, it's his version of what happened, which really seals her fate and, and commits her to an asylum for, for 60 years. It would have been easy I suppose, to paint him as an entirely black figure mm. and an embodiment of, you know, evil and self-seeking. and But you don't do that, and Rosanne doesn't do that. No. And I thought that, that, that made the book resonate in, in interesting ways. Yeah. Well, in a long, long way, the other book about the First World War, I was kind of thrilled, in a way, as an Irish Catholic of agnostic Catholic parents, such a thing, to write a priest, Father Buckley, who was a very good priest, in the sense that he's given the task to be in the front line looking after whatever wounded men or dying men there are and he does it nobly and it was kind of wonderful after all the trouble we've had from priests in the Catholic Church in recent times to write such a man and when I got this is only a couple of decades after that Father Gaunt but by this time the country was established and the Catholic Church had been almost made like an established church, and power, moral power, was conferred upon people upon whom it should never have been conferred. I don't think human beings should have that sort of power, but it became radically easy to meddle in people's lives. There was a kind of a myth that we were holy Catholic Ireland and our women were virginally dancing at the crossroads and everyone was pure and nationalistic and of course the reality disproved it at every human breath drawn in and out and so there's a, there was a lot of frantic clearing up and mopping up to do it's a bit it's on a tiny scale in a very different way and not quite as savage but in some ways similar to the horrors of stalinism where he's he's trying to tidy up russia kind of gar garden it, get all the undesirable people out of the picture. There's the same sort of impulse to try and match an idealism with, with a reality and it just couldn't be done. And, and I think people like Roseanne were the victims of that and I, I think in some ways too Father Gaunt is the victim of that because he's been made a powerful, dangerous person whereas, you know, 20 years before, like I say, you might have been like Father Buckley doing something that truly, that would be truly priestly, which would be helping people into the next world. So I, I think I think that's people that were, you know, both supposed oppressors and oppressed were equally victims, you might say. And I mean, that also comes from a, a statement like Bishop Tutu said a few years ago that there's nothing a man can do that I would not do myself in other circumstances. 
which is a huge statement and a wonderful statement. And I think that's the only way, that's a statement arising directly out of his efforts at peace and reconciliation in South Africa. And I think we need that. We need to think like that in Ireland. He's a good guy, you know. I was talking to Sebastian Barry, whose novel The Secret Scripture is available now. In his debut novel, The Story of Forgetting, Stefan Merrill Bloch also looked to his own family's history. In this case, it was a genetic history of early-onset Alzheimer's disease. At one point in the book, one of its two narrators, 15-year-old Seth, whose mother has developed the condition, is researching the disease's history. He recounts an anecdote from Dr. Alzheimer himself, who had a female patient who came to him and said, I have lost myself. I put it to Stefan that this provided a very good way of thinking about his book, in which all the characters seem to be in the process of losing or trying to recover themselves. Absolutely, yeah. That quote actually was something I thought about as I was as I was right. I mean, Seth's mother, when she has a fall near the beginning of the book, says something very similar to that. And actually, in I think in an earlier draft, said precisely that. It seemed like such, you know, like such a wonderfully poignant expression of of what it means to have Alzheimer's because that's really what it is. You know, it's it's a stripping away of your selfhood, the way that the disease. That's the first thing that you lose, really. You know, your memories and your ability to reason, your ability to create narratives of your life. And so, you know, you lose yourself. But even though you can still speak and you can still have some form of reasoning, your selfhood is really the kind of the first thing to go. I've read things you've written elsewhere about your own family history, and I wondered how you felt about writing this book. Did you hesitate before you launched into a narrative which has got a, a sort of strong theme about Alzheimer's, or did you did you kind of em- embrace the theme wholeheartedly? I I guess I hesitated. You know, I'm always writing, so. I had written hundreds and hundreds of pages about things that weren't Alzheimer's and about things that weren't characters very much based on myself or characters that so entirely came from myself, I suppose. At some point, I think um, it all felt sort of false. And then I, and in a lot of ways, I think that this book is a sort of elegy to my childhood. It's, you know, it's, I, it's the book I had to write in order to kind of become an adult writer. So I, it's, it's full of all the things that I, you know, hoped for and feared as a child. So discussing Alzheimer's because it was such a prevalent thing in my childhood and such a burden of my childhood was, I mean, essential to the project, I think. I I think I had to, just just as I had to write about Texas and I had to write about, you know, being a pimply 15-year-old and fears of isolation, all the the things that I thought about and, you know, when I was a kid are in there, so... Tell me how Seth took shape, because he's a pimply 15-year-old. He's a, a bit of a, a geek. He's kind of trying to, to make sense of the world, and also he's got this terrible family curse hanging over him. He's trying to make sense of, of what's happening to his mother as she slowly degenerates. So how did, how did Seth take shape? Seth actually was the last character to take shape. It's kind of an interesting thing. You know, they always tell young writers to uh, write what you know. And according to, I mean, Seth, Seth is what I know. He's, he's, his biography is very, very closely mirrors mine. I always say, actually, it's, it's almost autobiographical, but there's a scene in which Seth um, stands naked before a mirror and is critical of his anatomy, which is in no way autobiographical. <laughs> but no, he, he it's interesting to me because I'm, I feel like I'm most critical of Seth. Abel, I, I'm, I'm more able to love him or to, um, to accept him, I guess. Seth, Seth, because it's so close to myself, I'm I'm very critical of the character and of 
I mean, but I, I think if there's if he feels real, maybe that's why, because he he does things that he contradicts himself, and he's a complicated and confused person. I mean, like I was, and like I, I suppose I still am in ways. So it's it's an interesting thing to write someone that's so autobiographical, and then put it into this sort of fictional milieu where no one else is, you know, as deeply autobiographical in the story. So we talked about Seth, whose mother is gradually losing her past. The other narrator is Abel Haggard, and he is kind of caught in his past. He's full of memories, but he's lost people. And what's encroaching upon him, a theme throughout the book, is is building. Is Texas, is modernity, is kind of pushing in upon him. I wonder if you could say a bit about that, because that seemed to me another sort of strong theme in the book, how the world was pressing him out of it. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think the geography of the book is another story of forgetting, in a way, you know. It's, it's such an American impulse, I, I think, that, you know, this idea that we, it, you know, it's sort of like the dream of the pilgrims in a way is that we can like, wash ourselves of our past and if we build new cities for ourselves, we'll be sort of freed from what came before. And so I grew up in a town like this. That it's like sort of the ultimate expression of that terrible American myth that we can, that we can obliterate our past. You know, I, I grew up in a brand new house in a brand new neighborhood where there's 10 designs and they're all repeated again and again. There was something there before. I mean, it wasn't that developed, but there were. You know, I grew up on the edge of a farm. There were old farmhouses everywhere, and then it, and to make way for the suburban sprawl, they just raise all these places and they they use eminent domain laws to force people out of their homes, as they do with Abel in the the book, and pave them over and and build McMansion after McMansion. And there's a way in which the way in which like the the idea of well, I guess a couple. There's a couple of themes there, isn't there? That you know, there's the idea of memory loss that Alzheimer's, in some way, performs something similar. It creates this new landscape for us that raises our past. There, so there are two narrative strands by the old man and the young boy, but between those, you interleave narratives of a mythological land called Isadora. Isadora um, is this sort of land that the family created presumably hundreds of years before as this tradition that they've maintained over over their history and it's this imagined world this place that exists without memory and i think well i think in in one way in a simple way it sort of just came from my own family's experience you know my grandmother who lived with us when she was dying of alzheimer's and my mother have um always told me stories of sort of imagined worlds. I mean, Isadora wasn't the world we had. We had several other ones. So in, in a way, I've, I've thought of that as a really powerful way in which uh, our family identity is maintained. The other side of my family is Jewish, actually. And I've also always kind of felt like Isadora, this tradition, this you know, this history of a text that's revised every generation and constantly returned to is sort of a Torah metaphor. And actually, I think that the family in the book you know, the way that they come from a single point of origin and they all share a genetic history, a shared genetic history, and they're scattered, the diaspora, and they share a text. Like, all of this seems, like, very metaphorical for the Jews to me. And I, I, it's something I didn't realize until after mm. after I'd written it. Yeah, so Isadora, I think what it accomplishes... It's interesting. It, it's, it's a way in which the characters in the book can address their fears or give themselves hope in ways they couldn't in, you know, like the rules the normal rules of reality you know they create this mythical landscape as yeah as, as a way of working out something internal and, and um which can only be expressed in this kind of elevated mythic way and i think actually that is that's kind of what i do you know i, th- I think that i had the family do that because that's exactly what writing fiction is for me as you know i 
it, because I can't explore or express or describe all the things I would like to in the musty rooms of reality, I, I, I go into fiction and I create these like mythic, this mythic milieu that allows me to describe these things. So Isadora for the characters in my book is very much like the book is for me. And it seemed to me that the family bequeathed not only its, its genetic inheritance, but it also bequeathed stories and in a way the stories were the counterbalance of the, of the genetic inheritance. Absolutely, yeah. I mean, in a, in a, that's a, a very good point that the inheritance of the gene is, is its own text and it's like an obliterating text. It's a text that you know, makes you forget. And then the fact that there's like this other text that accompanies it, which are the stories, uh, you know, that they're a way in which memory is maintained in the family's history, even as it's, you know, the genetic text strips them of it. And the book is, is really a very positive book. I think the New York Times review, you know, said it's surprising mm-hmm. how much positive content you can get out of a story which is potentially you know quite depressing i mean did you did you intend it to have quite a strong positive counterbalancing weight if you like to to what is a, a, a you know a potentially terrible degenerative neurological disease i don't think that i i intend things that much as i write you know i think if it's uplifting and if it's fun or if it's you know whimsical or whatever it is it's only because that's my personality, I suppose. Like, I, I don't think, I mean, I, maybe, and maybe it's not always my personality, obviously, but I think when I was looking at something so dark in my own, my own family's history that I had to kind of go into humor and to, into whimsy try and try to find reasons to hope, you know, and reasons to stay hopeful. I mean, I think, you know, humor and hope and any sort of uplifting message is almost always derived from deep sadness and deep fear. I mean that's that's where that stuff comes from. It, it, you know, I had to spend years inside of this book. Like I, I think some readers have, some potential readers have been hesitant to read a book about Alzheimer's because they they don't want to have to spend you know three or four days inside this like bleak world. Well, I didn't want to have to spend two years inside of it. So it's not it's not bleak at all. You know, it's it. I, I had to fill it with with um, things that entertained me and and reasons to laugh. You know, and reasons to hope or else it would have just been unbearable. I was talking to Stefan Merrill Block, whose debut novel, The Story of Forgetting, is in the shops now. You can listen to extended versions of the interviews in this podcast by visiting Faber's website at www.faber.co.uk. There are also many extracts of Faber authors reading from their works there. You can make sure you don't miss the next Faber podcast by subscribing free, either on the Faber site or by typing Faber into the search box on iTunes. The next Faber podcast will feature interviews with American novelist Andrew Sean Greer, talking about his evocative novel The Story of a Marriage, set in post-war San Francisco. I'll also be talking to Stephen Armstrong about War PLC, a book which reveals the true extent of the new corporate mercenaries' role in warfare today. As you begin to look into it, you start to see how many people, how large the contracts, how huge the numbers, the fact that some of these companies have helicopters, have aeroplanes, they have armoured vehicles, they have, uh, they're using you know, mortars and rocket propelled grenades, and, and, and you realise that, th- that these are huge, huge concerns. I hope you'll join me next time, and until then, goodbye.